On the podcast today, how do you go from waiting on tables to becoming an award-winning children's book author? And more on Roe versus Wade and dealing with long COVID. Welcome back to the show. By this point, most of us have had the dreaded COVID. Well, if you're lucky, it didn't hit you too hard and you got over it quickly. But that has not been the case for some people here and all over the world. They have had long COVID. And my guests right now are Lynette, a long sufferer of COVID-19, and Dr. Lynn Filiatro, a retired Vancouver physician and a member of Protect Our Province. Good morning to you both and thanks for your time today. Good morning, Rajee. Lynette, you have long COVID. Tell us about the journey and how you've been affected. Yes, well, I got COVID before vaccination was available in December 2020. And I had acute infection where I had great difficulty breathing and that's what got me to hospital. And it turned out that I had COVID pneumonia. What I've learned is that COVID is not just a respiratory illness. And that took a couple of weeks and then several months. It's been 18 months since uh, acute infection, and I continue to have symptoms. Wow, 18 months. So, So what are the other symptoms you're feeling? Constant fatigue. When I do some physical activity, nothing dramatic. I'm not talking about going for a jog. Um, it can be walking down to, to the kitchen, chopping an onion, and I just feel exhausted. It's a profound exhaustion, as well as breathlessness. That's been something that has definitely plagued me since uh, COVID pneumonia. And initially, a lot of brain fog, just struggling with, you know, recalling names or following through ideas. And that translates to how efficiently or not you're working at a computer or just reading a book. So it isn't just a lung disease. Long COVID is definitely real. And I think we need to talk about it more. Lynette, have you found other people who also have long COVID? I do. I do. And and I I found them only because I was referred by my physician to a long COVID clinic. And so it was very validating to speak to other people who were going through this. And in some cases, way more significantly than me. You know, I think if if we had a, an epidemic of people with broken limbs and we saw people in plasters and crutches, it would be more evident. But there's a lot of disability that's happening, which is a hidden disability often, which is why I think it's really important to talk about it more and for people to understand what the consequences are and that will help to make better decisions because it seems vaccination alone is not preventing infections. And I would definitely advocate for stopping infections or preventing them or mitigating against them uh, because this long COVID is not, it's, it's 
debilitating. It changes the quality of your life. Dr. Filiatro, how common is long COVID? That's a very good question. Um, So to answer that, we need to use data from uh, the UK and from the US because in Canada, we're not collecting this data yet, and especially not in uh, in British Columbia. Sorry, why so, aren't we collecting that data? It seems in British Columbia we've we've decided that what we're mitigating against, uh, or how we're managing the pandemic, is mainly against hospital being overwhelmed. We're not looking at the sequelae. Of COVID, we've decided, or we've been told, that it's either you get this respiratory uh, illness, and then you either get better, or you land up in hospital, in the ICU, or possibly dying. We don't talk about what if you don't recover, what happens after an acute infection of COVID. So we're not gathering any data right now in British Columbia how many people have long COVID, how many people are attending long COVID clinics. We've got at least four in British Columbia. We don't know how long is the waiting list for long COVID uh, clinic. So to answer your question, if you've been vaccinated and you have a breakthrough infection, your risk of developing long COVID has been estimated at about 10%. If you haven't been vaccinated, that risk is closer to 30% of developing long COVID after an infection if you're unvaccinated. What of significance for most people is coming out of these long COVID clinics? What are we learning from them? Well, you know, we haven't, um, we don't have a lot of data out of BC. What we know is from the jurisdiction like the UK that have done amazing work gathering the data. And like Lynette says, this is a life altering condition. Some people get better and they recover, but that's not the majority. For the majority, long COVID is very long. Uh, It's been 18 months for Lynette. And for some people that have had it since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, it's now been two years. It can affect not just adults, it can affect children. And the other thing um, that is worth mentioning is it doesn't really matter the severity of your acute presentation with COVID. So Lynette was admitted to hospital, but we know of people that have had very mild acute infection or even have been asymptomatic and have had have developed long COVID. In fact, that's the majority of, of people who have long COVID. They've had mild illness. Yes, and Lynette spoke to that also being an invisible illness, uh, so people don't see it, so they don't know that one has it, and yet it's it's very real. Uh, long COVID is definitely mm-hmm. very real, and, and it has many people suffering in silence. I want to thank you both for being with us this morning and sharing your stories with our listeners. Can I thank add you. one thing, Raji? You've got we about 10 a, seconds. <laughs> we have a briefing on Monday if people want to tune in to uh, uh, Protect Our Province BC. Uh, briefing. It's at noon on Monday. Okay, thank you so much for that.
abortion debate. If you talk to an obstetrician or gynecologist anywhere in the world, you get a really graphic picture of women's reproductive health. Whether it's in the West or the East, women have abortions. And whether they have them safely or not, well, that comes down to access. One study shows an abortion ban in the U.S. may lead to a 21% increase in pregnancy-related deaths. Again, talk to a gynecologist and you're going to find out why, because a self-administered or unsafe abortion can come with a lot of health complications. My guest is Michelle Fortin. She is the Executive Director of Options for Sexual Health. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Rajiv. As you watch what's happening in the U.S. with regards to abortion, what goes through your mind? Well, I mean, it's it's devastating and shocking and incredibly and anchoring. Um, I'm incredibly concerned for um, people who can get pregnant uh, in the States and no longer will have, have the opportunity to choose whether or not uh, to continue being pregnant or to move forward with their lives without being pregnant. It is incredibly um, shocking to think in 2022 we're having this conversation about the United States. Yeah, and uh, a study has shown, I mentioned, that there would be an increase in pregnancy-related deaths if uh, there was an all-out abortion ban. What do you know about the impact on health when abortion access is limited? Well, what we know is that um, the number of abortions that are required uh, don't increase when there's a law against abortion. They also don't decrease. And so people through millennia have sought abortions because it was not the right time or it didn't work for them to be pregnant. And what that means is finding other means that aren't safe and that puts maternal health um, and maternal life at risk. So I am uh, appalled at that number, 21%. That's a huge number of people that could die because health care is being taken away from them. Yeah, and uh, we've all come across stories of women who have died from administering abortions in an unsafe way in places in the world where it is illegal. And what does that, what kind of impact can that have on a broader community? You know, there there is already a sense of helplessness that people are feeling with the uh, likely overturning of Roe v. Wade. So imagine the helplessness when you're hearing about friends and colleagues um, uh, putting them themselves in harm's way because they cannot get the health care that they need um, to carry on with their lives without being pregnant. It is... Um, it's terrifying to think about the souls that would be lost and the futures of those people as well. So what would a future without legal abortion look like in terms of the nuts and bolts of what people would do instead? You know, what, what's interesting in the United States, of course, is that the Roe v. Wade decision, if overturned, sends the rights back to individual states. And as we've seen over the last number of years, it's progressively become incredibly divided around social issues. So you're going to see a patchwork in the United States where you'll have um, blue states that have um, uh, approved access, legal, safe abortions, and then um, other states where things will be banned. The concern, of course, is that they're going to move even further with this 
that there are states that are ready to take away contraception uh, from people that can get pregnant uh, with the idea that uh, at fertilization, um, life begins. So what you're going to be seeing is that, you know, people like myself who are white, middle class, university educated with a lot of privilege are going to be able to travel and get what they need. But racialized folks, people that live in rural and remote communities, people that earn less, people that are disabled, um, people that are members of the 2S LGBTQAI community are really going to suffer under these laws. And in fact, you know, I'm, uh, I'm hearing a lot of activists talking about this being an act of white supremacy in many ways. Where will those people, the marginalized, the people of color, the people from lower economic uh, groups, where will where will their lives be left if they do not have access to abortions when needed? So you mentioned that 21 percent, up to 21 percent of um, mortality uh, will be impacted. And I'm afraid to say that the majority of those faces will be racialized folks. And in Canada, what are you seeing in terms of access? Um, it, you know, thankfully, we have a Morgenthaler law from 1988 that says that um, uh, our body and our autonomy over our body is a right in Canada for all Canadians. And, um, and so abortion is um, safe and it is legal here. The issue is equitable access. So, um, you know, if you live within 150 kilometers of our southern border, you are likely to be able to access an abortion. Um, It's not as easy in um, some provinces as it is in others. So there's not kind of like a one size fits all across the country. Um, And the reality is that if you live in a rural or remote community, um, you may not be able to find a provider or there are providers that you kind of need to find a way to navigate the system um, to figure out who they are. So keep in mind that we're very lucky. Um, uh, About four years ago, Health Canada um, uh, officially uh, brought in the uh, medication abortion pill, which goes under the the cell name of Mifikai Miso. So that means that people uh, up to 10 weeks can get a medication abortion. They don't need to be in a hospital, they don't tell anybody other than their, their physician, and they can be prescribed a pill. So that is something that, that can actually be broken down in rural and remote communities if more family doctors see abortion as health care. Now, even what you've just described there, that would be above the head of someone who doesn't have uh, necessarily access, uh, an educational background, the wherewithal to figure all of that out, the means to figure that all out. So, so where do those people get left? So, you know, one of, one of the things that Options for Sexual Health uh, has is a 1-800 line. Uh, it's the sex sense line. So that is person Monday to Friday, nine to nine. You can ask any question, including um, uh, how to access an abortion. It's a, it's a free and confidential line. Um, and the reality is you're right that people are going to be left out because navigating the system that should be just healthcare. Hi, I have an unplanned pregnancy. I don't want to be pregnant anymore. Um, you know, will you help me? The answer should be yes from any family doctor. The number of family doctors um, who, 
you know, talk about, well, you know, I, I, mean, I have a family practice. I don't need to be an abortion provider. But the reality is, is 60% of the people seeking abortion already have children. Such an interesting so we, t- statistic and, and one we've uh, come across many times. Yes, and I think it's important to um, consider that if more physicians right out of um, school and into practice saw abortion as part of their health care and the delivery that they needed for people with uteruses, we wouldn't be having this conversation because it would just be universally accessible. Yeah, do you really believe that? You know, um, I, I need to believe that. <laughs> um, I think, you know, I think the other thing, though, uh, that's important is, is to keep in mind that we know there are other things that um, diminish the number of unplanned pregnancies, right? So free contraception in this province would limit the number of abortions that are, that are required because people could plan ahead by having that contraception. Um, comprehensive sex ed in schools, so consent and the idea that young people understand what's going on with their bodies when, they, when they're seeking pleasure and how they can do that without getting pregnant. Um, child care for people so that when they want to have that third child, they don't have to worry about money. Um, and the other thing is, is that if all of our services were um, equitably accessible. Thank you so much for being with us today, Michelle. Thank you for your interest, Raji. Have a great day. You too. My guest was Michelle Fortin. She's the Executive Director of Options for Sexual Health. She was talking there about how abortion is health care and that we need to be taking a more comprehensive look at it in amongst a larger picture, even mentioning there that we should be talking about child care, among other issues when it comes to women's health. <music> Since the U.S. Supreme Court's leaked opinion on overturning Roe versus Wade, people have taken to the streets to fight for women's reproductive rights, something we actually have not seen uh, since the women's rights movement in the 60s. But the motive behind the Senate's decision goes further back than that. Justice Samuel Alito defended his stance on overturning Roe versus Wade by quoting an infamous witch trial Justice, Justice Matthew Hale. So why of all people did he choose to quote a witch trial judge? Does overturning Roe versus Wade compare to the witch trials? Joining us today is Mary Beth Norton, renowned historian and researcher at Cornell University, who specializes in colonial history in early America and the Salem witch trials. Good morning, Mary. Good morning. Please call me Mary Beth. Mary Beth. Mary Beth, you specialize in early American women and your research has focused on the Salem witch trials. So how on earth are we hearing about witch trial era quotes uh, from people in the U.S. legal system today? I think that's a really good question to ask, and I don't think that Samuel Alito, who wrote the uh, leaked opinion, has given us a good answer for it. Um, he did not quote um, anything that um, Sir Matthew Hale said about witch trials. He, he quoted instead, and in fact misquoted, some of the things that Hale had said about abortion. Um, but the real question is, why is the 17th century relevant to the 21st century? And that's a question that Alito, in fact, has not answered. Yeah, it's got a lot of people puzzled. So let's try to understand the Salem witch trials then. What were the underlying motives there? Well, the people in the in 17th century believed in witches. Um, uh, there were very few skeptics. Um, most people believed in witches. We have to understand that it was a period of 
before the scientific revolution when many strange things happened that there were no explanations for. For example, if a child seemed fine one day and was ill and died two days later, um, people the default or people came up with the kind of default explanation, which was witchcraft, because what else was there? They didn't understand about viruses or germs or anything like that. And so basically um, people would say, oh, I had a huge argument with my neighbor who cussed me out and I think she could have cursed our child and that's why our child died. So that's basically the kind of um, thinking that was done in the 17th century which is why it's so weird that um, someone today would quote something by someone who believed that um, as evidence for a modern court decision. So how much did gender have to do with the witch hunts? Well, it obviously had something to do with it. Um, Basically, uh, witches were, uh, women were believed to be much more uh, um, attuned to um, the possibility of witchcraft, uh, They were somewhat mysterious to the men who were writing these treatises about witchcraft, and it was believed that the devil could seduce women, literally sometimes, um, into becoming witches. Um, And so even though it was always theoretically possible for men to be witches, and indeed there were men who were tried and convicted of witchcraft in Salem in 1692, um, most witches were seen to be women. So I know you can't answer for him, but Justice Samuel Alito, in quoting uh, this this old quote, this is almost ancient seeming quote from Sir Hale, what was he trying to evoke for people there? What he's trying to evoke is um, make an argument that abortion has not been a part of American practices since the beginning. Now, The beginning depends on how you define the beginning, because, of course, Sir Matthew Hale was never in America. He was only in England. But it's true that his treatises on the law were quoted um, by American lawyers in the 18th century. So presumably that's why Alito, or perhaps a law clerk, uh, we don't know if Alito actually did this, um, uh, this research himself, perhaps a law clerk was the one who dredged up these quotes from, um, from Sir Matthew Hale. But I would point out that um, in quoting Sir Matthew Hale, Alito suppressed what was actually an important part of the quote. Um, at the, in the 17th century, because people really didn't know for sure or could not know for sure if a woman was pregnant until she felt the fetus quicken within her, that is, until she felt the baby move, until the usually in the fourth to the sixth month of pregnancy, sometime in there, um, uh, abortion before that time was fully accepted. Uh, it was only uh, illegal after quickening. Um, Hale, I mean, um, uh, Hale made that, well, Hale made that distinction. Alito uh, quietly suppressed it by arguing that Hale was totally against abortion. This is not true. Hale did not believe that abortion was a problem before quickening. Okay. And no one in the 17th century really did. Oh, interesting. So he just extracted part of the quote is what you're saying? That's correct, yes. He just, he did, well, actually, I think he did quote the word quick, but then he didn't pay attention to it. Okay. Sounds a bit <laughs> sloppy, maybe, but how prevalent do you think this idea is of, of likening women to witches in American culture? Well, it was certainly in the 17th century. Um, today, of course, there are modern witches who practice what they call the Wiccan religion, and they are mostly women, but I think this is all not 
very prevalent. I mean, it was not even true then, and it's not true now. Abortion aside, when when some cultural and religious institutions, and I'm not just saying Western ones, it happens in every corner of the world, but when they devalue women to the point where others will make decisions about her body, what kind of impact can that have on health care in general? Oh, I can make tremendous, uh, tremendous negative impact on women's health care uh, in particular. For example, one of the things that really concerns me about the potential overturning of Roe versus Wade is the possibility that miscarriages could be misinterpreted as abortions. And as we know, about one in 10 pregnancies ends in miscarriage. Does this mean that every miscarriage is going to be investigated as a potential abortion? I think that would be appalling. Absolutely. Yes. Margaret Atwood just penned an article about this um, amongst uh, countless others. You know, she has a, there's a streaming series based upon her book, Handmaid's Tale, and it shows this world where um, men decide every aspect of a woman's physical safety, her freedom. Um, it's a really hard uh, series to stomach, actually. It's a very hard one to get through. Um, and now people are marching at protests in the United States wearing robes, that are worn in the series, Handmaid's Tale, to evoke this sense that American women are headed down that road. Are they? Well, it's entirely possible because um, as many of the commentators on uh, Alito's draft opinion have um, pointed out, if the opinion remains or if the qualities of this opinion remain in the revised version that will surely be in the final um, decision of the court, there are implications of that even um, something like uh, the, the Griswold decision of, of uh, 1965 saying that um, states cannot regulate contraception, that those might fall because the, all of it rests on the right to privacy. And part of what Alito is saying is that there is no right to privacy embedded in the Constitution. So, therefore, everything that seems to come from that right to privacy could be in question, including gay marriage, including interracial marriage, and including contraception. Okay, so a potentially far-reaching impact. Thank you for being with us this morning, Mary Beth. Sure. Glad to, glad to help out with some historical perspective. The Vancouver Comic Arts Festival kicks off this week. If you enjoy comic books, the kind for kids or adults, you'll want to check out some of their events. And one of their artists is Matthew Forsyth. He's an award-winning children's book author and illustrator, and he's going to be reading from his latest book, Mina, this Friday at Lucky Comics on Main Street. Hello, Matthew. Hi, Raji. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for your time this morning. So some people that become illustrators, they pursued it out of the gates in school. You didn't. You took a different path. What was that? And, and how did your career uh, really take flight as an artist? Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, it's been a long path. I think I, I, uh, I actually studied po- politics uh, when I was in university, but then I traveled for about 10 years around the world and worked around the world. Uh, and I was teaching English in Korea and uh, reading uh, picture books to my my kindergarten class, and I just fell in love with the picture books and the comic book culture in Korea. And uh, yeah, and then it took a while, but I started making comics and picture books back in North America, and uh, some of them did well. And I ended up working on a TV show in LA, um, and uh, yeah, and things have things have uh, found their way back to art. 
Yeah, you've worked on a TV show. You've worked on Adventure Time, Robin Robin. You've also written these books. What was it like, though, working on a big animated series? Well, that was completely different to uh, uh, picture book work or comic work because uh, it's a very, you know, it's a very collaborative medium animation. So it was, you know, you're working with 40 very creative uh, people and a very tight deadline. So it was an amazing way to put your sort of ego in the drawer and uh, just do what needs to get done every week. And I really, that's really where I learned how to be an artist, how to really like draw properly, draw technically and uh, learned so much about storytelling from the writing on that show. Uh, so, yeah, working in TV and, and film, I find it's a really great counterpoint to working in books, the sort of solitary life of working in books. And with children's books, I mean, there are so many out there. It continues to be a flooded field. So how do you make something that sticks with kids? Like, what is the key to that? Wow, yeah, that's a really good question, and I'm writing another book now, so I'm I'm thinking about that every day too. Okay. I think, I think, uh, I do think there's, you know, I, I, when I when I'm writing, I go into the library and I read, I try to read like 30 books a day just to really immerse myself in what people are doing and what's out there, and trying to find really like the ones that last, you know, like old vintage picture books are really miraculous, and from around the world too. I try not to have a bias to just American or Canadian picture books, but I think uh, I think really it's got to come from true emotional moments in our own life. That's ultimately what I've come to decide is that if it's true and it comes from some emotional uh, history that we can bring to the book, I think it will resonate with other people and it might last. I mean, who knows what can cut through the sort of huge market. The one, it's a wonderful market, but uh, yeah, I think, I think it really just has to be something personal. So when you're writing a book... How do you stay focused? Like, how do you not lose yourself to the the dozens of books that you've been reading daily in the library? And how do you like stay true to what it is you're trying to get out? Well, that's also that's also something I think about a lot because you know we're in this uh, social media world where every amazing artist is online, blowing us away every day with their work. I've actually learned to actually stop following a lot of artists that I love the most. <laughs> you know, I just kind of cut try to cut out the noise. Yeah. Go deep into my when I, I do I do picture book workshops and uh, uh, I teach um, uh, uh, writing and and, uh, and illustration and one thing that I wish I had I had learned earlier when I was an artist was that our job is not to like network and go out into social media our job is to go deeper into ourselves and go deeper into our own weirdness so that's really what I'm trying to do when I'm you know writing. That must be so hard in this era where everyone is sharing and artists are constantly producing just for the purpose of sharing online. Yeah, I mean, I'm guilty too. Like if something <laughs> doesn't, something doesn't <laughs> resonate online, it, it, it doesn't not affect you. But um, I don't know. I, I, I do think um, we, we know. The other thing is like I do think we know deeply uh, inside us when something is working and resonating. I think we have a tendency always to ask around and, you know, we have like writers groups and book, you know, you know, writers clubs where we ask each other for approval on what we think works and doesn't work. But I think deeply, we really know what's working and what's not working. And our job is to sort of meditate and get into that, that deep zone where we, you know, where we can feel it. 
at some point, every artist, they have to settle on a style that's going to become the thing that they're known for. And like all great children book illustrators, you've got a definitive style and it's this, it's colorful. There's these muted colors, almost a melancholy to them, even in scenes of joy. Like for example, in your book, Poco and the Drum, the protagonist, a frog is marching through the forest and it's moody. It's a moody scene. So how did you nail that style that you wanted to go with as an artist? Well, that goes back to Korea. I, 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 the artists that I was, the picture book artists I love in Korea are very expressive, almost like fine art painters. And it felt like you were looking through an art gallery when you're looking through those books. So I knew I wanted to work in traditional media and I knew I wanted to do something freeing and sort of expressive and painterly. And I also, I think the big thing, the big sort of breaking point for me with, with, uh, with painting was, uh, studying Paul Klee, actually, was from the Bauhaus movement in Germany, like studying how he used color and how he uh, related all the facets of color uh, to each other, like temperature and saturation and value, and seeing how he moves the eye through a painting. So that, for me, was a huge turning point when I just, I just tried, copied a bunch of his paintings one year, about 10 years ago, and then it, it started to click. I started to understand how to use color. And, uh, and now that's kind of all I can do. Now I'm really focused on writing i'm trying to make the writing the more interesting creative part and and the painting is a vehicle for that okay so you've worked in comic books tv shows children books uh what to your mind is the best work if you can get it well i do think i think picture books is i might i've always been uh books have always been closest to my heart i uh, my mother's a librarian i my first job was like 11 years old i was a page in a library putting books away and I was reading all the books before I put them away. Um, I, I just think um, it's the most direct way to express yourself as an artist. There's very small teams on a, on a, on a picture book. You know, usually it's just you and a publisher and an editor and maybe an art director. If you're working in animation, that's, you know, it could be 40 to 60 people on a TV show or a film. And that's fine. It's amazing. But it's a different experience completely. And it's not as direct. Um, I really love how personal picture books can be and comics too, of course. Yeah. How personal they can be. And you must see that when you read, you do your readings and children show up. What's the the best reaction you've gotten from a kid about one of your books? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I've seen some cosplay. I've seen some kids dress up for, as the characters. And I mean, that's mind blowing. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I think the books, the two books I've done have been very parent focused too. So the parents get into it. um, When parents have like, recreated like there's uh, like uh, quilts and stuff from the book like recreated actual props wow yeah i mean that was really like what is happening it's really it was really kind of uh, exciting it's exciting to see these things come alive in the world i was the weirdest experience was when i, I did a um a reading in germany in berlin in this classroom in berlin and um these children had written an 11 minute song about buckle and the drum oh my goodness oh my <laughs> and goodness they were like they were chanting and like uh, singing for about 10 minutes. And uh, I, I was sitting in the middle of the room and I was like, is this going to turn into midsummer? Is this gonna, <laughs> how does this end? <laughs> but it was amazing. It was really funny. Too. I love it. I love it. Thanks for being with us this morning, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.